Hey, Carl here. You know, there's something new from our sponsor, Text Control. Their new product, DS Server, provides document services out of the box for all platforms and languages. Whether you want to integrate document creation, editing, sharing, or collaboration into your web app, DS Server provides the back-end technology to integrate professional document processing. For example, using DS Server, you can integrate a Microsoft Word-compatible document editor into a pure JavaScript, Angular, or ASP.NET Core app, create PDF documents using web API calls, or request electronic signatures from end users. DS Server is hosted on-premise in your infrastructure or with your cloud provider, such as Microsoft Azure. And you can test DS Server without downloading anything. Create your first DS Server application within minutes by requesting a trial token on their dedicated website at dsserver.io. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Happy New Year, Richard. Happy New Year, friend. And I'm sorry, I thought you were channeling the Duke there for a minute. Uh, well, uh, welcome back there, partner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just feeling, having, having a good time today. You're feisty. I'm I a little like feisty. It. Yep. Yeah. I got so. up uh, all morning and banged my head against some bugs that have defy explanation. You know, the usual. I don't that's know what you do fun. on a Monday morning, but that's a cup of coffee oh, and some bugs. Yeah. I've been, uh, you know, the problem with keeping me home too long, I start modifying the home. So, the number <laughs> of tools has increased substantially, the number of gadgets. I mean, at this point, looking over at my work desk, there's at least four projects sitting on it right now. So, Some people clean to- out their closets. Some people make sourdough bread. Richard Campbell reconfigures his servers. Oh, yeah. No, we're mo- I'm moving uh, over to Home Assistant now for automation for a bunch of things. So, that has been a major disentangling of services. Like, I actually can draw an architectural diagram for the house now. Wow. Just in case. That's where we're at. <laughs> well, Happy New Year to everybody. And uh, let's get started with a very cool uh, little tool for better know a framework. Roll the music. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? Well, my friend and fellow AppV Next developer, Brian McKay, wrote mm-hmm. this little tool, which you can get on NuGet, and it's on GitHub. It's ether.listcompare, E-T-H-E-R dot listcompare, and you got it. It's comparing two lists and doing something useful with the result. And you would think that, you know, this is kind that, of yeah. built into the framework, but mm, not really. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and and just trying to do the compare really efficiently, I hope. That's the whole thing, right? Yeah. Because you can waste a lot of memory trying to compare two things. That's true. And he even has a little caveat that the performance is fine for small lists, but definitely currently not optimized for huge data sets. So, it does rely on a number of link expressions and plenty of room for optimization, but it's a good start. And... Uh, you know, you can just install it with NuGet or go to the GitHub uh, right. repo and, and have that. My it. goodness. I mean, it's not really part of the framework per, per se, but you're actually talking about .NET code on Better Know Framework. I'm confused. Uh, yeah, it's uh, one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning over a new leaf in 2021, Richard. Yeah, who knew? Okay, who not, knew in 2021? <laughs> talking about .NET on .NET Rocks. Okay, I not, am a, not really. I'm amazed. 
<laughs> a little bit. Uh, Brian often brings cool stuff to the table. He so does. Awesome. And you know that, you know, in order for him to create a tool like this, he would have exhausted all yeah, other scoured. avenues. Yeah. He, he really didn't want to write this. No. But he had to. But he had to. Exactly. That's awesome. All right, man. That's it. What's what I got? Who's Good talking one. to us today? Well, grabbed a comment off a show 1633, which was the identity server update with Dom and Brock from the NDC in Porto back in 2019. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were scheduled to do a show in Porto with them in 2020. We just didn't, you know, do Porto. (laughs) I mean, with the pandemic, all of that changed. And now we've kind of, we've had a big gap. In fact, this is probably the longest stretch we've gone not talking about identity server between this particular show and today. <laughs> I've mentioned just, it a couple of times, but it was oh, more wow. like under my breath cursing kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you got it out in the field, do you? Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that when the guys come on. None of us do identity enough to be smart in it except for Dom and Brock. Right, right. And it's always a thing we have to do. Anyway, this comment comes from Stephen Schaff. And admittedly, it's two year, pretty close to two years old now because it's from that from that 2019 show. In which Stephen was saying, I really hope was hoping for an update on policy server. Uh, what's the state of this product? Is it still getting active development? Authorization is so close to authentication, I really thought we would have heard at least some conversation in this show. And admittedly, that show is from two years ago. And then and he's like, Stephen, I don't know the answer to that, but I know somebody who knows. Mm-hmm. So I will ask them, and you'll probably hear about that very shortly. And so thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Go By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook because we publish every show there. And if we comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music Go By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. And uh, we'll compare it with the last tweet you sent. Nice. You know, as we do. As you do. As we do. All <laughs> right. So, these next guys uh, really don't need any formal bio to be introduced. They've been on the show many times uh, talking about identity, talking about security, talking about all sorts of things in their claims and whatnot. It's uh, Dominic Beyer and Brock Allen. Welcome, guys. Hey. Hi. Thanks. It's so, been a while. <laughs> Yeah, let me tell you what I was muttering under my breath. So, uh, for the first time, I tried to do the built-in authentication authorization in a Blazor WebAssembly app that's hosted. So, there's, you know, there's three flavors of Visual Studio template for Blazor. There's server, and there's two for WebAssembly. One's a standalone, and the other is um, uh, hosted. And the hosted one uses Identity Server. And uh, it, it turns out in order to do roles, which the other stuff does, you know, pretty much out of the box, you have to write some code. You know, you have to parse the the claims from identity server and turn that into a principle. And at, it, it requires some configuration. And I had to go out on the internets and find it. And I did find it, but it kind of seemed like something that should just be in the box in the template. So what's the story with uh, with that? How that template worked out with you guys? <laughs> so first of all, um, I, I'm happy to to hear that you are now doing it properly and not doing basic authentication anymore with Blazor. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Oh, there's that. That's good. <laughs> um, so so to be honest with you, uh, 
I don't know those details myself, actually. <laughs> um, nice. um, so Microsoft used Identity Server for for their JavaScript templates, you know, like in when they when they released ASP.NET Core 3.0 for Angular yeah. and and React and so on. And the whole idea was that it it was not not about Identity Server. It was about the fact that the the front end. It's not hardwired to a particular backend, rather like use a right. standards-based OpenID Connect library and point it to some yeah, yeah. server URL. And there, there happens to be one in the template. Yeah. Um, yep. And they use the same approach for Blazor because, well, I mean, it's also JavaScript, right? Just, a, you know, right. <laughs> different a little bit. Sort of. Um, JavaScript maybe. wrapped in C Sharp. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's really the story behind that. Okay. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I personally have never really tried it <laughs> because oh, okay. I'm I, I am not a front end person at all. I mean, um, you know, you, you never seen my yeah, yeah. E even my test UIs are ugly for test UIs, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, so I, I don't know. To be honest, uh, what's going on? Okay, that's good enough. <laughs> One thing just just to mention that is is that um, uh, we are. These days, proposing a different approach to securing JavaScript-style mm -hmm. apps with token-based architectures, I guess, yeah? Right, right. And that is what called the back-end for front-end approach, you know, where yeah. basically the front-end does not deal at all anymore with all of the security tokens and the token lifetime management right. and so on. It's all done by the back-end. And that's kind of in line with what browser vendors want you to do yeah, because they're all changing the, right, right. the browser sandbox rules with same site cookies and intelligent right. tracking prevention and don't allow you to use iframes. You know, all of these things kind of lead to more like a, a server side approach. So right. I, I actually just for a customer of ours did a sample to secure Blazor with this approach and it worked fine. I mean, um, it, it it just changes the, the you know like the the, the the procedure a little bit I guess, but from a from a user's point of view they don't see a difference. Yeah? Right. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, and the uh, couple things about that one is that the you know browsers are changing so quickly and the, it, it's sort of like back in the day when you're trying to get your CSS to work right across browser vendors. The same thing now with all of these complicated. You mean yesterday. Yeah. Well, or yesterday <laughs> exactly. Um, but. You know, th things change and, and getting it right across vendors is really tricky. I know because I worked on that library, the one that is used in, you know, uh, in the, the JavaScript front end apps. And, and, uh, I have people, you know, saying, Oh, today it's not working in edge. And then two or three months later, Oh, edge is updated. Now it works again and things like that. So having this architecture push all the security and protocol work of, of managing tokens back through the server side, um, makes your JavaScript simpler. There's there's beauty in that. Yep, nice. Certainly is. It, it'd be nice if the uh, you know Visual Studio templates were just a little more complete. That's all. It'd be nice. Like you had to create, you have to create a custom user factory to to parse the the jot into claims. Anyway, just a little complaint. Not you guys. <laughs> just you know, it's the nature of our business. You know, things just kind of. They, they evolve over time. And, and I personally am waiting for uh, some features in .NET 6 that it's just going to make all this stuff seem like, what were we complaining about? You know? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure that'll happen. So now. much harder. <laughs> yeah. So what's new, guys? What's new besides the whole uh, the shift to server side jot management? Well, that so you know, like when when, when I prepared for the show, I, I actually looked up when we last met, yeah, and then I you know I realized wow mm. that was in at, at Porto in 2019. Um, so a lot a lot is new since then, right? Because normally you know usually we did our annual thing to 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 yeah. uh, talk about what what happened in the last 12 months or so. So I guess uh, from my side, two things were happening in the last 16 months, I guess, and. The first one definitely is um, the Norwegian healthcare sector to to uh, basically to update their architecture to a token-based system, and um, and that's not not the interesting part here. But the interesting part is that this sparked this whole discussion about is OAuth secure enough for these kinds of uh, environments? Yeah. Wow! Wow! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not a question I I ever thought anyone would ask. So and as it turns so so and yeah and we started basically. Uh, kind of independently creating a, um, a higher security profile for their use cases. Yeah. And it turns out the same work has happened in, in different industries as well in parallel. Like there's the financial, you know, like there's, there's this thing called PSD2, the payment service mm. directive two in, in, in Europe and open banking in the UK, which are different now. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, um, but to your point, Dom, like when I think about the origins of OAuth, it's like comments on blogs. Yeah, that that's where it came from. That's right. That's where. Well, I mean, Google tried to solve a legitimate security problem with this protocol, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how to grant a third party access to your, let's say, Google Calendar without you having to disclose your password, right? right. Yeah, and that was a. It still is a hard problem to solve. Yeah, that's a hard problem. Yeah. So, um, yes, you're right. It, it totally originated in the consumer space, right? But it turned out. That what's secure enough for Google probably also works for many companies. But, but there's also this mindset of because when I think about that time, companies were doing federation, right? Like the very top-down complex security rules, and sort of the consumer bottom-up. Like I just want to be able to have my name appear when I write a comment on a website. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of that strip-down of what's the minimum necessary to make this work. Yeah, in 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 some ways, OAuth was like a counter reaction to all the ceremony we had in WS star, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it was WS star without the ceremony around it, <laughs> kind of. Sometimes it mm -hmm. was a bit too simple, right? And that's, mm -hmm. that's the reason why these questions came up, right? I mean, there's the RFC, RFC 6749, yeah, which is written in 2012, which is eight years now ago. Um, and yeah. it was meant to be a simplification of the previous OAuth version, which was very heavy on crypto, which was, which actually was more secure, to be honest. Yeah. And also had right. operated on different preconditions. Like, for example, HTTPS was not a given. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so they, they, they simplified OAuth and, uh, the vendors loved it because the simpler the protocol, the more people are going to use it. Right. Um, but that was the whole drama around OAuth where one of the spec authors left, right? Very, you know, uh, with a loud bang, basically he left the committee and saying like, you're, you're, it's, it's a death by, by, by a thousand cuts. Yeah. You're, you're, you're hmm. dumbing down OAuth that it's not secure enough anymore. Hmm. I mean, was he right? Well, he was right in the sense of it was less secure than the previous version. Okay. 
but less, you know, less secure is it nobody can open the door. And now there's a less secure one that nobody can open. Well, I think, <laughs> I think the, the, the one big thing where he's absolutely right is that in OAuth 1, they had this thing called proof of possession access tokens, where if you leak an access token over the wire, the attacker cannot use it. And that feature they killed in OAuth 2 because it was hard to use because it required a lot of crypto. So there were right. a couple of breaches that, <laughs> took exactly this simplification of the protocol and turn it into, uh, you know, like an attack. Yeah. Um, right. So, you know, that's one of the things that we're in the healthcare system, you know, like it's now suddenly it's not your birthday list on your Google calendar. It's your, you know, I mean, <laughs> in Norway, they, had, they, have a, they, they have a service where you can um, basically tell, you know, uh, um, you can tell them that someone is dead. Mm, so, right. and if you have access to that service, you can basically declare arbitrary people as dead. That that could be problematic. That is a high, <laughs> you know, like a high value asset. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I knew it was rigged. I've been saying it was rigged. That's how they rigged it. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 long story short, yeah, in 2012, uh, people that the, the spec offers didn't anticipate that it would become so popular. Right, and it, it would be would be the backbone of the financial industry, of the healthcare system, of e-governments, and so on and so forth. So yes, there mm -hmm. was definitely room for improvement here, yeah. And that's uh, what I spent a good chunk of the last three years with, actually. Yeah. Right, and certainly my experience with OAuth has been if you implement it correctly, it is quite secure. But there are lots of bad implementations. <sighs> well. The first problem is, is that even if you implement a spec word by word, you can come up with an insecure implementation because the spec is a bit vague, uh, you know, so from <laughs> in certain areas. Um, they, they, you know, I think they suffered from the problem that many companies were sitting on this IETF committee and they all had different priorities. And, and right. everybody got a little, you know, like a little clause here. You may do this or you may do that or you may ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the, the HL7 spec, SGML. It's like once you get enough committee members, there's so many alternatives just because everybody wants their thing that you end up with being nothing. Yeah. Analysis paralysis. And that, is, and that is, you know, part of the reason why Aaron Hammer, the, the guy who wrote the original spec, left, right? Because it, it, this was all mm -hmm. vendor driven. You know, very, very, normally the IETF is very, you know, emphasizes the point quite a bit that it's not vendor driven. Yeah. It is. <laughs> well, until the vendors got involved, yeah. then it became vendor-driven. And they have the most money and the most time and the most to win and lose. So it's hard to resist them. And what, what he was also complaining is that once all of these vendors got their little saying, they left. They, they left the committee, right? Let, let, let someone else finish it. <laughs> right, right um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we, we spoke about this quite uh, a couple of times already. But what happened in the end is that Microsoft had to employ someone just to finish the spec and get it out, out of the door. Mm. Um, and that's what, what he did. And then he left Microsoft again, basically. That's, uh, that's the story. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, that, that, that's all history, I guess. Um, uh, much more interesting is, is that um, in the last eight years, there's been quite a lot of work in improving the security and creating these higher security profiles and adding additional specs on top to fill the gaps that happened. Yeah, let's talk about those gaps because I'm curious to find out what what those little problem spots are. Yeah. So, well, I guess the biggest gap is, is that the spec was not always very explicit. 
the, the original yeah. stuff. Yeah. So they created a whole set of documents, what they call the best current practice, the BCP, which basically gives concrete implementation advice to, to developers implementing this. Yeah. There's uh, mm. one for native apps. There's one for web applications. There's one more, more like a general, you know, overview document, for example. And they are really, really good because they are not just theoretical threat models. They are basically written by people who implemented this and analyzed the attacks and analyzed the countermeasures and, and, you know, created really actionable documents around that. Hmm. So that's probably the most important thing that happened. Yeah. And, uh, um, and we, we can talk about the other things that, um, happened too. But, um, basically the, 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 the big thing in the OWAF world is that, Probably next year, there's going to be a new version of it called OWAF 2.1. Oh, that's a big deal. So, and, and what OWAF 2.1 really is, is the original spec plus all of these BCP documents. And they actually removed features of the protocol that proved to be security anti-patterns, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. So, for mm. example, um, may maybe, Brock, you want to talk about the implicit flow because that's something that <laughs> you spend a lot of time with. Yeah, I mean, so one one of the original um, in the original OAuth spec, one of the workflows that they allowed for is basically for browser-based apps, you know, like Spas, to obtain a token, um, so that they, you know, the JavaScript running your browser could use that to call an API. Um, but the way that the access token was delivered was in the URL, in the hash fragment of the URL, and so you know there are a lot of complaints against that, like. Um, the tokens coming back from the, uh, you know, in this URL, it shows up in your browser history. Um, you know, the, 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 um, the, the fact that the token is delivered from the endpoint that the user is interacting with leaves a lot of like possible issues about user being confused and like almost like, you know, clicking the wrong link and thinking they're logging into the right thing and getting the token back. A lot of, lot of, um, things in the protocol that, they didn't, they wanted to accommodate these spa apps to, to let them, you know, get these tokens so they can do the protocol and call APIs. But the delivery mechanism of the token was never ideal for those scenarios, just because the browser is so problematic and, and, you know, fallible from a security standpoint. So they basically nixed it from this, you know, this BCP, um, saying that that flow is not the, the best one. And the, the one wow. that Dominic was talking about, uh, the, the one for browser-based applications, in one of the early drafts, I don't actually remember if it says it in the final draft, but the, and that's the, the document that um, talks about this BFF pattern, right? The back end for front end. And, and, and the, the, the way they phrased it in one of the early drafts was something like, you know, if you're writing a spa with all this JavaScript running in the browser, it's so complicated to properly secure this thing that maybe you just shouldn't be doing OAuth at all, right? And then that's this, this spec is the best current practices for browser-based applications using OAuth. And a section in the spec says, or the recommendation says, maybe, maybe you shouldn't use OAuth, right? <laughs> it's really complicated. <laughs> but what they, what they really meant is, to be honest, yeah, is, is maybe you should not store these OAuth access tokens in the browser because right. we think that the browser is impossible to secure. Yeah. Right. And that, that's where the spec takes you down the path of saying, well, make your server side of your spa do the protocol work. So it still does OAuth, it gets tokens, but it's all managed server side. And the protocol is, is all initiated and driven by the server side code. And the JavaScript just goes to the site, the server side redirects you to go log in, does all the protocol stuff. 
And then you end, just end up with a cookie in your browser. And so what they really are saying is all of your JavaScript, when you call APIs, you call back through your server side uh, and then it proxies over to the real API. So in other words, the JavaScript doesn't make direct HTTP calls to the web API. Mm, right. You're delivering the request through your backend, which arguably and, and is pretty much what we used to do like 20 years ago, right? <laughs> but, well, and it's funny how server side is sort of swung back up. And one of the reasons is these security yep. issues that when you eliminate carrying identity out to the edge and you do as much of it as possible further back, you just all a whole class of man in the middle attacks go away. A whole class of reproduction attacks go away. Like you, you don't yeah, have to deal absolutely. with it. I mean, it definitely reduces the attack surface because you sort of eliminate, well, mm-hmm. uh, securing cookies and browsers to the back end is a known, known thing, right? We've dealt with that for yeah. all these years. And the fact that you can make cookies unavailable to JavaScript, right? Helps a lot. <laughs> Which, right. which is the, the main thing here, right? Yeah. As Brock said, it, it, we, we've come full circle, right? I mean, that, that was the style 20 years ago. Then suddenly this OAuth thing became fashionable, right? And everybody was saying, don't use cookies anymore. Use tokens, right? And now we realize, huh, maybe that wasn't the best idea. <laughs> Yeah, mm. maybe cookie, cookies are a pretty good idea. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, they, they have changed cookies significantly, right? I mean, the cookies, the cookies yes. today are not the cookies five years ago or even 10 years ago with all of the, the you know, like the developments uh, towards the same site sandbox style where, yeah. you know, like browsers now by default make sure cookies don't travel across site boundaries anymore, which wasn't the case five years ago, which, yeah. made, which made them right. actually problematic. Yeah. Cross-site scripting, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, I mean, I, it, that all sounds like good stuff, and it's and it's interesting just the reality that you guys are dealing on the edge of what is the right way to authenticate and protect information moving around on the internet. That it is an evolving standard. It's not just implementing against the standard, but making it. Yeah, and it's several standards actually. I mean, that's the thing that that when we say OAuth these days, it's not just the one RFC from back in 2012. It's now like. I don't right. know about 18 or 18 or 20 of them at this point. And there's a whole list of them. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what, as Dominic was saying, that's what this OAuth 2.1 is. It's sort of a roll up of all of those RFCs that have been put out over the last several years. I, I well, kind of think of those as patches yeah. to the original mm-hmm. spec. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're almost like using <laughs> semantic versioning almost. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not adding. Mm-hmm. A, I mean, well, m- m- maybe they don't. <laughs> but but <laughs> the, the interesting idea is definitely that OAuth 2.1 does not introduce new features, but it, it, it basically restricts existing ones or actually removes ex- um, existing ones or refines the wording of the original spec. Yeah, for example, in the, the, the original spec never gave any advice on how to validate URLs. Right. And URLs are pretty important in the redirect based protocol in the browser, right? Because the, the wrong <laughs> URL brings you to the wrong place. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so yeah. So, so things like that have been fixed actually. And they're now very explicit that you must do exact matching of URLs, no regular expressions, God forbid, <laughs> no wildcards, whatever. Yeah. Things like that. Um, and that's an improvement. And they removed implicit flow. They improve, uh, they removed another flow called the, um, the password, well, it was called the resource owner password credential grant, a uh, very long word. Um, but basically the idea is that in, uh, they, they want to, some flows allowed that the user would type in the password into the client application and not into the log, login server, so to speak. Mm. 
science shows basically the more often a user types in their password into several places, the more prone they are to phishing attacks, for example, because they just don't think about it anymore. Like, why do I type in my password again? Well, who cares? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But if you are used to only typing it in maybe once a month in the same spot, like like the Google login page or whatever whatever login page, right? Yeah. or, Or your password manager maybe the next phishing attack will not succeed because you actually think about it. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't be typing in my password. Typing in my password is weird. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so these are the things they, they remove basically from the spec yeah, and to basically to, to, to update it for 2020, I guess. Yeah. For, you know, like eight right. years later. Um, and, and then of course, there's a whole bunch of additional specs, yeah, which uh, have been released, which are not part of this, um, but uh, s- sitting on top of that. Yeah. And um, one of the most, I guess, uh, the most important ones from my point of view is that they finally um, tackling the proof possession problem. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, like for eight years now, it has been postponed and postponed and postponed. And we only had bearer tokens, which basically means, you know, if you're losing your tokens, like on the network, anybody can use them. Yeah. Whereas with proof possession, there is a cryptographic binding of the token to the owner of the token. So if you are leaking your token now, on an untrusted network or something like this, the attacker cannot simply use that token, for example. Yeah, Things like that have mm-hmm. been added, but these are the things that should have been there much earlier. But I guess that's how the standardization process sometimes works. It's a big undertaking, I guess. Yeah, no, it's, it's huge. And again, it's all learned stuff, right? We're learning more about the way people operate on the internet, what they need to do, the problems they're having, and mistakes that are being made and you seem to be trying to correct all of that but also you you have to go with what the browser supports how long did it take before we had secure cookies you know yeah of course yeah um yeah. and, and that, that's a whole another story right uh, how the browser vendors are these days changing the security rules and uh, uh, in you know like trying to fight legitimate problems like uh, you know um, um uh, tracking networks and things like that yeah and how they along the way heard legitimate protocols like for example OAuth or OpenID Connect because they look very similar <laughs> on the wire now. Yeah? Right. Yeah. yeah, trying to fix those things. And uh folks, before we go any further, let's stop for this very important message. If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The starter edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. You know, there are tons of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them. And some of you may have even used a VPN before, but I like to do research on my sponsors. And I can only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in. And I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. Second is Speed. I've tried lots of VPNs in the past. Many slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN for two years now, and my internet speeds are blazing fast. 
Even when I connect to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from others is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. You just fire up the app and click one button to connect. It's so easy, even Mama Franklin can use it. And it's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash dot net. That's expressvpn.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash dot net. And we're back. It's dot net rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey. And we've got our friends Dom and Brock on to talk a little bit about well, I think we've done the state of identity now, but now my next question is, so how does this impact identity, sir? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So, <laughs> um, Job security for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, um, I, I very well remember uh, kind of like the first line of identifier code I ever wrote in my life, and it was basically part of a blog post. Yeah, um, it was like around 2009, I guess. Uh, that was around the time when they released it, the Windows Identity Foundation, yeah, which was like a really a groundbreaking piece of code yeah, yeah. for the .NET space uh, because it gave it basically it, it it fixed all of the old problems we had with I principle and I uh, identity and so on, and introduced tokens and WS Federation and WS Trust and all of these things became first class in, in .NET. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, and you know, like the, the, um, not, not, not many people know that. Yeah. But the reason why WIF existed was because Microsoft tried to create, um, I think it was the first, uh, the, the first Windows server feature that was ever written in .NET, which was ADFS. So the Active Directory Federation Service Federation Services yeah, was I oh no. I think was the the, the, the the ever first part of Windows Server written in managed code. Yeah. So there was a, there was a, there was right. a whole team trying to create this product, and they realized ah there's so many things missing in .NET. We need to first backfill the gaps in .NET. <laughs> to actually make it feasible to write such a product, and that was WIF. I remember, I think we were talking to you about WIF when it came out. Uh, and Kim Cameron, too, right? Yeah. Didn't we do a show with Kim Cameron? Yeah, there it is. 173, 2006. What I learned from that was using it uh, as a means of authorization as well, you know, where you could, you had these claims and you could tell whether the user had the ability to do this or do that in code, which was a pretty powerful idea. What I'm really getting at, at is this was the time in the .NET space where these types of technologies became accessible without mm. having to implement things from scratch, which was really, really complicated. I mean, SAML tokens and all that stuff yeah, by the time. Right. When, uh, when Identifier was born, actually, I mean, the very first version of Identifier was called Starter STS. And it, was, it was six files on the file system. Yeah? Six ASPX files with code behind. Yeah? <laughs> mm. And... Um, and the reason I turned this into an open source project, quote unquote, yeah, by the time was, it, it was just too much code to post on my blog. 
<laughs> so uh, the, 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 the code, code blacks by the time, right? That seems to be like a, yeah. uh, a thing where you can upload files <laughs> and people can watch, you know, let's see these files online. So in, instead of posting that code to my blog, I, I posted to code blacks and that became identity server. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so many things have happened since then, right? I mean, um, back then it was my only, you know, I, I was working alone on that and, and, uh, luckily Brock, uh, you know, uh, stepped in and was interested in that. And that was version two, I think. And then there was version three with Katana and then version four with ASP.NET Core. And this thing just got so popular. We never, you know, never planned anything like this. It, it, it was a hobby project. It allowed us to learn the technology by the time. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, and then it became bigger and bigger up to a point where, you know, like many open source projects are at, at the crossroads at some point where you say like, huh, this is not just a hobby project anymore. I mean, there are real people depending on it, real, real companies depending on it, right? And um, on one hand, helping them with their problems. On the other hand, r working on the product is becoming harder and harder. Yeah. And um mm. And to be honest, we, we ignored advice for a long time from several people saying like, you should, you have to stop doing that. You have to create a company, right? That allows you to, right. to work on the, the, the product full time and not cross finance the product work with, um, consulting work, for example, or training or whatever, right? I mean, this has been an ongoing conversation for us on the show yeah. too, right? That's sort of, how do you have an open source? How do you make a living from an open source project? And there is that whole, you know, we we build it over here and we consult on it over there kind of mindset. It, it worked for us really well for many, many years just because we were, you know, it, it, it was fun working on it. It was fun doing consulting and so on. But we realized more and more that um, even if we had to make like a substantial, you know, like, 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 like a smaller change to it. That required some engineering work that, that required us both to be on the phone for a couple of days. It was almost impossible because the paid work always took precedence, right? Right. So, and we thought about this for many times, right? But it, it's, it's not trivial just to set up a company between Europe and the States and all that legal stuff and licenses are all very scary, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, but 2020 apparently gave us a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> thanks 2020 yeah so so we finally bit the bullet and 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 uh created a company and now right now uh working on our first release for january yeah mm -hmm. so that's what so that is. what's different having a company <laughs> uh there's uh far less time to write code <laughs> 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 That's yeah. the first thing I can tell Property. you. I think I over since we announced in October, well, even before then, I mean, I've been, I've been sort of thinking for every one hour I actually get to write code on the product. Um, I think I'm spending three hours either on the phone with, you know, lawyers or with the website designer or thinking about business plans or pricing models. And, and all of that is not, you know, I didn't go to school for any of that stuff. So, I mean, it's, I, right. uh, it's, it's, uh, it's scary. Um, totally, you know, new, new job title in a sense. And, uh, but it's, it's pretty exciting. I, I like the, 
the goal, of course, is to build this, you know, this entity to make identity server better, better, better docs, better, you know, mm. time to work on the features, time to, to, uh, you know, samples and, and all of that implement all these new specs we're talking about. To me, it seems like it's about sustainability. It's like people are going to rely on the software for a long time. I've done enough enterprise development work to know if you incorporate a library like this, this is a decades long implementation. Like it's always going to be around. How do I know you guys are going to be around or rather that product is going to have life? Well, Identity it. Server 4 is still going to live on, right? And that'll be open source, right? So, I mean, first of all, to your point, it's actually fascinating how many companies just are happy enough to just download an, a hobby project from someone on the internet yeah, and base their core security infrastructure on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> as long as it's, it, it, as it's free, it seems to be not that much of an issue. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, so um, there were so, so many things I, I I can talk to, I guess. Yeah. Um, the sustainability thing is one thing. Yeah. It, it definitely, right. it definitely was a big open question for us. Um, how can we make this work over a longer period of time? Because I certainly, um, not sure about Brock, but I had a certain burnout factor. Yeah. Like when you from nine mm -hmm. to five work at a customer's and from, from uh, five to nine in, in, in your hotel room work on the code. Yeah. Um, right. so the thing is, no one should complain in the open source world about sustainability because it's everyone's choice what to do with their work, I guess. Yeah. Um, sure. that was one of the big takeaways I had when, when I, you know, took my time off in the beginning of the year to think about this, you know, more uninterrupted. Actually, um, I saw a talk from, you know, like the, the, the same Aaron Hammer I mentioned earlier who wrote the OAuth spec in the first place. He, he did a really, really right. good talk, um, at a conference, which was called a uh, fair trade open source. And, um, nice. um, great name. Yeah. And the, the spoiler alert, it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. So, um, he, he, he was the author or is the author or was the author, I don't know, of a very popular, um, Node.js framework. Yeah. Happy JS. And he went through all of these stages similar to, to us. Yeah. How to fund free open source. Yeah. And he went through, you know, sponsorship and, you know, advertising and even selling overpriced t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> All kinds of things. And in the end, it, it doesn't work out. Um, that, that's his conclusion. That's our conclusion as well. Yeah. It's not open source that has a, a sustainability problem. It's free that has a sustainability problem. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. and that was his conclusion that that's ours as well. Um, I mean, we, we, we still have a free version of our software. For, you know, smaller companies and individuals and hobbies. So basically everyone who, who doesn't earn that much money with it can use it completely freely, right? But if you are a company, you earn money with that. I think it's fair as, as in fair trade, you know, to, to spend yeah. some, some money on that. And that's why we had to basically, well, we did change the business model. Yeah? Now, does that mean that the new versions are not open source? <laughs> to the contrary. <laughs> that's, that's, that's question number two I often get. Yeah. It's like, are you, are you not right. open source anymore? No, it is completely open source. There, there is no contradiction between open source and not free. Right. 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 Um, sure. So yes, it is still open source. And that was one of the things we, from the start was our, you know, like top priority. 
keep it open source. We have a license that allows everyone to use it completely free for non-commercial open source work. Yeah. We have a license mm -hmm. that allows everyone to use it if they're a small company uh, for, to, to, to use it for free inside certain boundaries. Yeah. So we, we, we didn't want to cut off the open source community. Right. But on, right. on the other hand, we had to find a way to make it work in the long term. Yeah. Well, the bottom line is you were going to, if you needed to, you, you took a sanity break and that impairs the product. Like everybody's getting cut off anyway. And like there has to, sustainability is not about making money so much as it's about sustaining the product. Hmm. Yep. So the commercial license then is uh, for what support then? Well, it's, it's for using the binaries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and for support and, we have things like, you know, security notification services, like, you know, if some security related update happens, customers know it first, right? Before it goes public, mm. things like that. I mean, things that companies okay. care about, basically. Yeah. 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 Sure. Sure. Wow. That's interesting. No, and I appreciate, you know, this has been an ongoing theme at .NET Rocks for a while now about sustainable open source. Mm. And I appreciate that you guys have, you know, have brought this conversation in too, because it's, you're trying to solve it. You're in the mm. middle of this and trying to find a way to to, to live and uh, work at a reasonable pace and provide the things that people want. Do you want. find that companies want to um, go forward with the license, even though they nope. can just download and use stuff if they wanted yeah, to? That's the thing, actually. Pretty much every company we've talked to has said, finally, like, finally, we have a way to actually, you know, spend some money with you guys to keep you going, pay for the product. Because we did, we did the Patreon thing for years and sure, nobody, right. nobody, um, in companies has like a cost center for donations. Sure. Right. Yep. They don't, they don't yeah. know how to do that. They don't, you know, people, <laughs> companies just don't understand that. But the minute you right. say you have a commercial license, they're like, Oh yeah, fine. We'll get the license done, done deal. Right. And, and all the companies I speak to, um, are so much happier that we now have this new model in place. And even an annual license. So it's like you're getting a Patreon membership, just not using Patreon. Yeah, exactly. Patreon. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> it really is. It was, it, you know, like we, we tried this Patreon thing as an experiment by the time. Uh, and it was mm -hmm. depressing in the end to see that uh, individuals from companies sponsored us privately because they couldn't find a way to make their company sponsor us. Yeah. And right. that is just wrong. I mean, the, the world should the, the yeah. world shouldn't work like that. Yeah, but that it, but it, you know you poke on the real issue here, which is they don't know how to categorize it in accounting. Yep, and that's enough to stop it. Well, from happening. I, I use the uh, NPR analogy, right? It was like NPR, right? You know, National Public Radio yeah. in the U.S. or, or uh, uh, public TV. Um, you don't have to pay to get that or to watch it or, or to listen to that radio, but they totally run their run their organization off of mostly donations from listeners. Yeah. And, and they let only, you know only 10% actually donate, right? And they get the rest from I guess from federal funding. And they spend a lot of time and effort sort of I won't say guilting you into into it but making you realize that without support it could go away. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And so That's but, important. but but in the software industry that we're in, companies don't don't get that, right? They don't know that or or just doesn't work for them. So turning it yeah. into a uh, a formal, you know, commercial license was the only way to to sort of uh, work. Well, with you turn it into something they understand, exactly, yep. and so it works. Mm -hmm. The other, the other interesting um, thing I learned is is that probably, you know, um, the uh, open source 
projects out there which are very popular, which, which many companies depend on, and self-funding, you know, like uh, these two together are very, very few projects out there. Yeah, like all of the bigger projects which are open source, they have some sort of company back by backing it, right? Yeah, um, yes, right. Um, you you name them, yeah. Um, so the so the um, um, the we were in this really really small niche, really, yeah, of uh, of 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 being you know self funded and apparently popular, yeah, and. Um, and that is, you know, hard <laughs> because uh, you have all kinds of forces pulling at you in all directions, basically, to, to make it work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, I, I really hope that more and more of these open source projects out there think about, you know, um, what their value is. Like, what, what, what is their currency they're working for, right? Is it, is it fame, right? Is it attention? Is it um, being maybe getting hired by a, a big company, right? So that they, this big company can kill off the open source project <laughs> or not? Um, or mm. is it really that they want to build something which, you know, lasts for a long time? And um, yeah, it's tough. And as I said, as Brock said, yeah, I mean, we announced in October, but you can be sure that at least six months before that, we were on daily calls with, you know, as, as Brock said, lawyers and tax people and all kinds of things. So it, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And maybe, yeah. Um, maybe it would be nice if that would be easier. Would maybe, you know, like make that hurdle go away for the smaller projects as well. Yeah. Right. Well, we wish you a lot of luck with it. And, uh, we want to catch up with you again next year and find out how it's going. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Hey, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Steven's comment from the very beginning of the show about policy oh, yeah. server, because it, in some ways, I, what I hear you is describing sounds like, now, policy server is something people really want, and you've got a better model for making it exist. So, policy server was always a side project, if you like. Yeah, it's it's a separate com a side project on your side project. Yeah, well, it, it was our first uh, foray into <laughs> into the commercial world, maybe. Yeah, um, right. So that 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 just exists, and we are working on it. So. Uh, I think his question was, have we stopped working on it? No, we don't. We actually, these days, we split our time between our new company and policy server. That's pretty much what we do, yeah. Right. But I would hope you'd bring it in. Like, the big thing for me is it's still really just the two of you. Like, now with this new architecture and maybe a little more stable cash flow that you can get a few more devs well, in. Actually, that's not entirely true, right? I mean, so policy server was was also um, Michelle Rubustamante, who you guys know well. She's yeah. also yeah. involved in Salliance. Um, her, you know, her company is the, is the, uh, we have a team there that actually helps work on it. So that's why okay. it remains basically under the Salliance umbrella. And mm -hmm. our new Duende right. software company is, you know, right now just for identity servers. So those are strictly, strictly speaking, separate companies. But we, yeah, we actually great. hired people, right? I mean, not hired in full-time employees, but we now have people working on the website, Helping us with consulting, all you know, these are things we couldn't do before. Yeah, you know? right. Well, policy server it, it, certainly it, fixes that problem that I was experiencing in, um, you know, WebAssembly, where we were trying to <laughs> in Blazor, yeah, where we were trying to parse uh, <laughs> parse roles out of claims into the principle. You know, just sort of. It definitely does that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Why, why is that funny? <laughs> it, it's, it, you're throwing some very heavy machinery at that problem <laughs> in this case. Yeah, yeah, sure. I got you. Swatting a fly with a Buick. Another. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. But yeah, so but but just my last my last point um, um, for this open source thing, I guess, is you had Aaron Standard uh, on the show recently, and and he started this uh, yes. really interesting thing called uh, SDK Bin, yeah, which mm -hmm. uh, basically is his new project, and that is aimed at helping developers, you know, make it easier for them to to actually turn their open source hobby work into something sustainable. So that's a uh, uh, if anyone is listening here and is interested in that, should check it out, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll include a link to it. Uh, it is interesting, and it is, like I said, it, the, this marketplace is evolving. How do we build software this way mm. and make a living and be able to sustain it beyond ourselves, right? That, 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 we're still in the first generation, for the most part, of folks like you that have, have built software that companies are depending on, largely volunteer-developed. Yep. you're allowed to retire at some point. Like, what's going to happen? Mm. Like, there has to be life beyond this. If you've made a 20-year commit to a library, like, we we have no doubt that C-sharp and all the open source libraries at Microsoft, they're not dependent on any one individual per se. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that, that um, Mads Torgensen has a serious influence on C-sharp, but he's not the only right. one. But if, if Dominic Beyer wants to take a vacation... And, and Brock Allen needs, you know, it's going to take a few weeks Brock off. Is unhappy like, if I'm doing that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you, goodness, Alan, the two of you decided you both wanted to go away sometime. Yeah. Like, th this is what sustainability looks like. You're allowed to take a break and you're allowed to ultimately retire. Like, it's not today. It's not next week. But what happens 30 years from now? Do we just presume we're going to move on on this software that we won't be dependent on an entity server anymore? Like, it's not reasonable. There has to be a model. And I think that's what we're fighting for right now, is what does this model look like? Yeah, well said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, 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 well, it was I'm actually... you guys are doing the fight. We just get to commentate from the sidelines, and it's been really a lot of fun. <laughs> no, it, 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 that was on our mind as well. Like, how, how do we, you know, at yeah. some point pass on the whole thing? Um, because mm -hmm. it, it certainly doesn't help anyone if we just from... Should, you know, just say like, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to retire now. Thanks for playing. <laughs> like that's, that it's not reasonable, right? Like you care about the folks that are using these products that rely on them and so forth. And there needs to be a reasonable secession plan. Okay. Well, that brought the conversation to a screeching halt. That's right. I'm thinking about you dying. D yeah. I'm thinking about you dying, Dom. <laughs> I'm very excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't die today, buddy. Please. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited for you guys. I, I'm a, I appreciate you working on a problem that's a fair ways out of your comfort zone, too. Like, you, you, you've built up a set of skills around building identity tools that we all value highly. And now you're going to experiment with some business models, too, and, and trying to build the right model for taking care of this product going forward. But uh, I commend you. Well done. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we interesting to circle back in a year or so, maybe even in person, uh, and see how things are going. Boy, wouldn't that be a luxury? <laughs> yeah, what right. a concept. That would be great, yeah. Well, guys, thanks again. It's always great talking to you, even uh, even if it's uh, about Identity Server. Or <laughs> <laughs> <All> Rose. <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll catch you next time, okay? All right. Thanks, guys. See ya. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. 
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a